Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests on today's program, the political scientist Theo Rio Francos, will discuss the relevance of the Green New Deal in the present crisis. Spoiler, it's more urgent than ever. And then the journalist Alexander Zaitchik will talk about how the patent and profit-driven drug industry is making the search for a vaccine far harder than it needs to be and how a public option for pharma could change all that. Before that, a few words in the news. In the eight weeks between March 21st and May 9th, over 33 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance, an average of over 4 million a week. That's almost 20 times the weekly average before the crisis began. And the number drawing benefits in the week ending May 2nd, the most recent available, was over 21 million, 10 times the number before the crisis. Many states are having trouble processing the cascade of applications, so both the initial and continuing claims numbers, as they're known in the jargon, are behind reality. The so-called insured unemployment rate, the share of the labor force drawing benefits, is close to 16%. That's usually considerably lower than the official unemployment rate, so we're likely to see a number well north of 20% when the May employment report is released in early June. These numbers are breathtaking. And the Federal Reserve is out with its annual survey of households' material well-being. Most of the work was done last October before the corona crisis, but they did a supplementary survey in early April to try to catch up with the new reality. A few highlights. 39% of the people in a household with an income below $40,000 who were working in February reported a job loss in March, and another 6% had their hours reduced or got put on unpaid leave. Overall, 19% of adults had such an experience in March. No doubt these numbers, which are awful enough, have gotten considerably worse. Before the crisis hit, most households were doing better than they were in 2013, the year the Fed first did this survey. 75% of respondents said they were doing at least okay financially. It's a pretty low bar, up from 62% in 2013. 79% of whites, 65% of blacks, and 66% of Latinos pronounced themselves at least okay. That means a quarter of the population was doing less than okay last year, the best year we're going to see for some time. Despite what Trump liked to call the best economy ever, 16% of adults weren't able to pay their current month's bills in full, and another 12% said they would be unable to pay if they had an unexpected $400 expense. A quarter said they'd skipped medical or dental treatment because they couldn't afford it. Just over half the population had set aside money as emergency savings, but 3 in 10 said they couldn't cover three months of expenses by any means. And again, that was last year. There are several questions on crime and criminal justice, rather unusual for a Federal Reserve survey. It found that 28% of under 40,000 households have ever had a family member behind bars. Surprisingly, 14% of the over 100,000 households had had such an experience. 19% of whites, 36% of blacks, and 26% of Latinos answered yes to these questions. The high number of low-income and non-white respondents who have had a relative due time may not be all that surprising, but the share of the white and affluent might be. The American carceral state has a long reach. Now on to the Green New Deal. Right-wingers are using the current crisis as an argument against it. Their line is that lockdown is a foretaste of how life would be under it. Less extreme types argue that it's just too expensive to contemplate now that everyone is broke and the deficit is just going through the roof. To me, a Green New Deal seems quite sensible, the only humane path out of this hellscape. Here with more is someone who's far more immersed in this issue than I. Theorio Francos is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College and co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, from Verso. Theorio Francos. The current crises, I guess there, there are many, you can put a whole bunch of adjectives in front of crisis. What does that do for uh, a Green New Deal politically? Yeah, well, there's so much, so many ways to answer that question. I mean, there, there's a number of ways in which the climate crisis and COVID and the economic crisis uh, intersect with one another. But I think the like broadest way to think about this is just how COVID plus the economic recession is kind of forcing the question of how the state intervenes in the economy and how the state intervenes to protect people's welfare and well-being. 
in some ways we've had a political opening around that question and a political opening that the left is potentially positioned um, to take advantage of. I don't mean that in narrowly instrumental terms, but to sort of propose our own ideas for what state intervention should look like. And that conversation is one that is in some senses auspicious for the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal proposes a massive state intervention in the economy to protect people's well-being, but um, uh, material well-being, and also to um, mitigate the worst of, of climate change. And so having the sort of broader conversation around how the state and the economy and people's welfare kind of interact with one another is a useful place to, to talk about the Green New Deal. Of course, the, the on the other hand, uh, Republicans and unfortunately also some establishment Democrats have framed the Green New Deal as something that has nothing to do with either COVID, the, the health crisis, or with um, the, the resulting economic recession from lockdown measures. And I, I think that that's wrong for many reasons. But to kind of reiterate, on the one hand, the economic recession and the, the health crisis does pose the question of state intervention in an urgent way. And that is potentially good for thinking through the Green New Deal. Um, but on the other hand, we already see that our kind of opponents in in, in Congress and, and more broadly are positioning the Green New Deal as something that is totally opposed to to dealing with, with the economic crisis and with COVID. So I think we're kind of navigating between those two contrary um, or contradictory effects of the current predicament on the possibilities for for moving forward with a Green New Deal. To me, it seems like uh, the current crisis makes the Green New Deal seem almost practical and not, you know, not the green dream that Nancy Pelosi dismissed it as. But on the other hand, like Republicans are painting uh, the, the lockdown crisis as a foretaste of what life under the Green New Deal would be like. They're coming for your hamburgers. They're coming for your cars. Um, how, how do you counter that, that rhetoric of they're coming for your exes that the Republicans like so much? Right. And I absolutely I think that they're um, taking advantage of this sort of taste of limitation in consumption to say that this is what the Green New Deal will be like. Of course, that itself is this very narrow vision of freedom that Republicans have propagated for many years or, you know, perhaps there's even a longer kind of settler colonial history to this idea that freedom is the freedom to consume certain things and freedom is also the freedom to exploit certain people. And so, you know, I have a right to, you know, exploit, you know, to, to, to um, uh, exploit essential workers and to buy what I want to buy. But the Green New Deal proposes a much more substantive and broad understanding of freedom in which freedom is like real material prosperity for the majority of people, which is a freedom that most people don't enjoy right now. And that's extremely clear in the sense that people are being laid off in, in the tens of millions and therefore don't even have access to basic health benefits or a social safety net. So the Green New Deal says real freedom is having basic material prosperity and security. And also real freedom is having protection from the worst uh, effects of extreme weather and rising seas and, you know, and hurricanes and wildfires and all those sorts of things. So the, the Green New Deal has a vision of freedom, but it's a different vision of freedom than the right wing kind of consumerist, um, you know, domination vision of, of, of freedom is. And so I think that we just we don't play by their terms. We propose our own positive vision and there's no way to kind of win that that argument um, with them. It's very obvious that the Green New Deal, if you read any version of it, whether it's the AOC marking resolution or whether it's the millions of articles that have been written since, the Green New Deal does not propose a lockdown. That's just like not what the Green New Deal proposes. The Green New Deal does propose that we would need to change some of our consumption habits, but in ways that we, that we, you know, proponents of the Green Deal think actually gives people more freedom and in a sense, more choices, you know, the choice to not just be forced to use a car to get to work, but actually have real options like mass transit. So the Green New Deal expands freedom and, and, and choice in a sense, but not the type of freedom that, that the right wing is attached to. Yeah, I'm a little worried that reactions to the pandemic will um, encourage the worst uh, instincts in American life, uh, specifically like the fact that New York, New York City was the most intensely hit, at least so far, part of the country uh, will uh, lead to a um, hostility towards density in urban life. The subway looks like it was a, a vector of transmission, will encourage people to want to take cars more. People will look just to suburbs as, as ways of protecting them from their potentially infectious neighbors. How do we counter that reading? Yeah, and it's and it's completely divorced from from empirical reality in terms of the way that the disease is currently spreading. There's been some recent reports showing that in rural counties that are of course much less dense and often lack public transit are actually where COVID is spreading the most rapidly, and that's because rural counties 
um, have very low hospital capacity and have faced just like totally total austerity and budget cuts for many years. And so they don't have the social care and provisioning to help deal with a pandemic. But Republicans that represent these districts are going to point the finger at, at cities when really their own home districts are suffering really badly from COVID. But I absolutely agree with the fact that in the near term, it's going to be really challenging to promote the kinds of we might call them collective consumption. So collective consumption just means things that we consume socially and in as masses and as publics rather than individually. So things like mass transit, like dense social housing, um, like sort of um, recreation, um, um, public, you know, temples of public luxury, um, as, as we've heard to them in the Green New Deal book. So those types of forms of collective consumption um, uh, via the public sector are going to be hard to promote um, because there is a conception that, that that's how disease will spread, even though like disease is spreading, as I said, very rapidly in areas that, that don't have those types of institutions or, or public services or don't have them at, at, you know, at, a, at scale. We need to counter this with a, a demand to actually invest more in public services. Um, first of all, to make sure that people are materially secure, because right now people, again, cannot rely on private employment for basic economic security. So we need to invest in the kind of public and social infrastructure that, uh, that, that keeps people economically secure, that allows for providing care, that helps people with the isolation aspects of, uh, of social distancing. So we should be demanding things like free broadband, we should free internet, which is obviously like an essential service right now, and also making sure that things like electricity and energy and water and all those sorts of utilities are publicly provided. In terms of transit, again, we need to demand actually investment rather than than austerity because we need to create a public transit system that is resilient in the face of not just pandemics, but also climate crisis. But I am I am worried about the fact that people will take recourse to to individual modes of transit and consumption and housing with the idea that that will protect them. But individualism and, and privatization actually doesn't protect people. It makes them more precarious, more isolated, um, more atomized, and, and creates a society that actually is not resilient against pandemics, climate change, financial crisis, or any type of crisis. It is encouraging to see uh, lots of people um, in the polling showing like 70, 75% of the public agreeing with uh, most of the uh, the public health measures. And, you know, the, the lunatics uh, with their rifles are um, very much a minority. Maybe there is more of an impulse to solidarity uh, in the general American public than we, we realized. I think there is. And, I, and I'm just actually disappointed yet again in the mainstream media for giving these so much attention, these meaning the protests that you were just referring to, um, which were, as we've discovered, in large part funded by right-wing Tea Party, Koch brother groups, um, groups that actually have ties to the fossil fuel industry. So it's very clear why they'd want to promote, uh, you know, a certain type of, of reopening the economy, because um, uh, they're, they're very worried about the effects on the fossil fuel industry, on the airlines, and a number of other industries. So, you know, we see that these are economically motivated and, mo and ideologically motivated, and they really don't represent a broad swath of the public. And unfortunately, the media has given them a kind of attention that over time could l make people think that lots of Americans don't like the lockdown and could actually change public opinion because public opinion is, is partly endogenous to media coverage. So I'm, I'm worried about that, but I am heartened about the fact that, that the vast majority of Americans across partisan, racial, geographic, and other lines actually have embraced a, a social response to this that involves limitations on, on the economy. Yeah, it's uh, it's very frustrating that they're not covering, you know, Amazon strikes or uh, nurses' demands for uh, PPE, um, but they are covering these lunatics with bazookas over their shoulders. Right. Okay, let's talk a bit about the Green New Deal specifically. Um, we've lost, what, 20-some million jobs uh, in the April employment report. We've got probably another 10 or 15 on the way in the next several months. One out of every eight jobs disappeared in April. We'll probably see another something like that coming in the coming months. So we're going to have a very, very serious employment problem. What kind of jobs, what kind of, of uh, employment program is in the Green New Deal as you see it? The Green New Deal is already a paradigm that focuses a lot on, on jobs, on green jobs, and having a very expansive understanding of what a green job is. So, you know, first are the kind of typical, quote unquote, green jobs, um, the first ones that come to mind, which are often in the, the clean or renewable energy sectors. So 
manufacturing and installing solar panels and wind turbines, lithium batteries, um, EV charging stations, that sort of thing is often what, what, what first comes to mind. But as many have argued, including my co-author Alyssa Battistoni, green jobs can also be thought about much more expansively to, to include sectors that are inherently low carbon and that we would want a lot more of in a low carbon, more sustainable economy. So things like nursing and child care, elder care, um, teaching, all of those types of jobs, which, which, are, which involve fundamental human relationships and don't involve manufacturing, you know, junk that fills landfills. So they're, so they're more environmentally sustainable for that reason. So the Green New Deal has this, this focus on jobs to begin with. And Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal plan proposed creating 20 million jobs, right? Um, and I think that will, in, you know, in the coming months, as more and more left-wing groups are kind of aligning behind a, a green stimulus kind of um, paradigm, we'll see more and more calls for really massive um, amounts of job creation. And also, just to make the connection, this job creation is, is connected to public investment, to the government at various scales actually directly investing in the energy sector, for example, or in infrastructure. So with that investment can come dignified jobs, unionized jobs, and also can come material improvements for frontline communities and for working class and, and communities of color that are the ones that have bared the brunt of both the, the climate crisis thus far, but also of economic disinvestment for, for decades. Um, so there's a jobs focus and there's an investment focus in the Green New Deal, which is exactly what we need right now when we're thinking about economic recovery, which is why it's so bad faith and cynical for Republicans and, and some members of Democratic leadership as well to say that the Green New Deal is irrelevant to the current crisis. In fact, the Green New Deal has um, an economic program that is is great for revitalizing and reactivating the economy with public intervention and in ways that, that lift up communities and workers. I heard a term uh, earlier today for the first time, the Purple New Deal, which is about care labor and such, uh, a social dimension that may not be captured in the, in, in the, uh, the color green. Um, is, is this part of your thinking? Yeah, absolutely. As I was mentioning, you know, with Alyssa Battistoni's work and, and the work of, of, of many other um, socialist feminist um, uh, scholars and, and economists out there, care work should be absolutely central um, to, to a Green New Deal, um, both in terms of the types of jobs we want to create more of, because as I was saying, those jobs are inherently lower carbon. They're, they're about relationships. They're about care. They're not about producing things in the world, um, but also for a strategic reason in terms of how we win the Green New Deal, which obviously will be a big struggle and already has been a struggle. It already has involved a lot of new forms of social mobilization, and we'll see more in the future. But when we think about like who are the key um, act, collective actors in a struggle for the Green New Deal, I would put first and foremost workers in the care sector, whether it's teachers unions or nurses unions, those unions have already been at the forefront of fighting for progressive social policies on a number of fronts. Many of those unions from SCIU to UTLA um, and others have endorsed or incorporated um, aspects of the Green New Deal into their own demands um, and, and, and had resolutions that endorse, endorse the Green New Deal. So I think that we see those workers more so, I would say, than workers like in the fossil fuel industry, which is often where we put a lot of our attention when we think about labor and the environment. Workers that are in care sectors are already behind a Green New Deal, and they're already like super militant in terms of the, the actions and work stoppages and strikes that they're willing to take to press forward on their demands. So I think we should think about those that sector of the economy, both because it's low carbon and we need more of it, but also because those, those are kind of our troops that, that are going to be fighting for a Green New Deal for the years to come. I'm speaking with a political scientist, Theoria Francos. This crisis uh, is really foregrounding uh, issues around uh, social reproduction. The fact that women at home are, uh, who are working at home are also trying to juggle childcare um, responsibilities more than their male companions might be, but also um, the role of schools in taking care of people beyond education. I mean, there's an important social reproduction role there. Um, the education, of course, is part of it, but also just taking care of kids and uh, allowing um, uh, adults to work. I mean, there's um, really makes this a very salient issue. It's not an abstract term. It's really something that people are living very dramatically right now. Right, absolutely. And I think that like the 
the increasing call to invest more in social reproduction and in social infrastructure and the kind of built environment that facilitates egalitarian social reproduction, right? Because there's a version of social reproduction that we're kind of experiencing right now, which is super atomized and privatized. We're all doing it alone in our homes. There's lots of evidence emerging um, that that is exacerbating gender inequality within the home with women taking on an even longer second shift right now under under COVID and under lockdown. Um, so I think that there's like a clear opening to present uh, a set of demands around um, around social care, around social provisioning, and around kind of collectivizing this work in some way. Um, and I think that that, again, is another way to respond um, to the idea that we should all, that the lesson that we should take from COVID and lockdown is that we should be more private and more individual in the way that that um, that we care for ourselves. And, and I think that the, the, the reality is just the opposite. And there's a clear opening for these left-wing demands that have been around since for a long time. I mean, since the wages for housework movement, at least, if not, if not earlier than that. I was stunned to see a, a pro-wages for housework piece in the New York Times the other day. I guess, you know, these things are percolating into the bourgeois press. I was stunned too, but but actually, you know, I think that every so often these op-eds happen. And, and while I thought it was good overall, I think one thing that is missing from that op-ed is exactly what we were just discussing, where that op-ed interpreted wages for housework in a very narrow way of like literally pay women for their housework, rather than how can we reconceive housework to be something that we collectively and in a less like, you know, gendered way provide for, for one another. Um, and, you know, what would it look like to actually decommodify childcare and education um, and a whole host of other things that women off, often do individually. And of course, in in unvalued and, and unpaid ways. So I think that, you know, there's different ways to interpret wages for housework. And the more socialist feminist way is to think about socially providing um, these services rather than just remunerating individual women um, for, for providing them. More Colin Pye and less cash. Exactly. We talked about this a little bit, but let's expand on it. The uh, investment program, when people hear the New Deal, they think WPA, big infrastructure projects, that sort of thing. And the Green New Deal participates in that to some degree. But how is, we're not just producing more of the same. That's not the idea. We don't want to make more bridges and highways. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you actually put it in that specific way, because there's lots of different types of infrastructure we can build. And there is a lot of need for different types of infrastructure. We're going to actually see, I think, in the in upcoming congressional debates and deliberations, we're going to start to see a lot more focus on infrastructure as a kind of job creation program. Um, but there's bad infrastructure and there's good infrastructure. And it turns out that the infrastructure that's bad for the environment is also bad for job creation. So I'll get a little bit more specific. It turns out that building new highways, for example, rather than repairing existing highways, is worse in terms of job creation. So if you build a totally new highway, you create fewer jobs than if you just repair what we have. And repair as a sort of general ethic and, and an approach to how we maintain infrastructure is something that's much more in line with the Green New Deal than building a bunch of new highways and keeping people like driving cars and things like that. So first and foremost, we should repair what we have because we don't need new highways. New highways just incentivize people to drive more and actually create more traffic jams, all of the research shows. So we should repair existing highways rather than building new ones. We should absolutely build zero, zero, zero fossil fuel related infrastructure, which is actually not that labor intensive in terms of the jobs it creates. So there's not a great argument on the jobs front for it. And obviously it's terrible for the environment. The more pipelines we build, the more oil is going to come out of the ground and travel around the earth. So um, so that that's another piece. And then in, in more positively, I would say that we need to invest in um, mass transit, as I already said. Um, we need to make sure that that mass transit is, of course, safe and hygienic and meets people's concerns around that but we absolutely need to invest more in mass transit. We need to invest more in social housing. Uh, we need to invest more in our grids. Our grid, our electricity grill, grids are an extremely bad repair, which is very concerning with extreme weather. You know, we saw that with, with PGE and the wildfire, but they're, you know, in, in New York as well with those targeted blackouts last year. So our, electric grid, our electricity grids need to be updated. They need to be modernized dramatically, and they need to be transformed to handle renewable energy. And, and that brings me to my last thing, which is that we should invest directly in renewable energy. Um, and I think all all of those areas, much more than new highways and pipelines, are um, much better in terms of job creation. They're, they're much better for the communities that they're sited in rather than toxic infrastructure, of course. Um, and they're, they're, they make our society as a whole much more resilient. So I think you can very easily, and you know, if Democrats want to do so, and I hope that they do, and I'm involved in lobbying for this, you know, make a clear program that centers jobs and investment in clean, green, modern sectors um, while protecting frontline communities 
is like that's a great counter vision to Republican austerity and fossil fuel like dystopia. And uh, the farming sector, we know we don't know exactly where this particular virus came from, but we do know that uh, factory farming produces very virulent pathogens. We need to rethink that food system. We're also seeing the crisis of workers in the meatpacking plants who are um, getting sick because of the conditions they work under. What does the Green New Deal have in mind for um, the agriculture and food production system? Yeah, I think that this what has been in some ways a, a, a little bit of a less developed part of the Green New Deal conversation, but in in some of the original proposals, and I'm including um, both AOC Marquis, but especially Bernie Sanders, which really like fleshed out like what a Green New Deal might look like. There's been increasing focus on regenerative agriculture, on agroecology, but also in this much broader understanding of what what justice, what social justice looks like for the food system as a whole, right? Not just about the farms themselves and making those farms better for the environment and, and protecting biodiversity and using permaculture and regenerative agriculture methods, not just that, but also thinking about the entire supply chain, as you just said, and how workers, primarily workers of color and, and immigrant workers are, are treated across that supply chain. I would really boost the work of Raj Patel and Jim Goodman, who have written on this extensively and done a few podcast interviews recently on just thinking holistically about what food justice would look like, which is deeply linked to both climate justice and to economic justice. And I and um, is, is one of the more exciting recent conversations uh, to come out of, of the moment that we're in. What about the politics of this? You know, obviously, the, the Trump administration and a Republican Senate would never pass a bit of this. I, I saw an article the other day saying that uh, Joe Biden wants to do a big FDR thing, which made my head spin. I don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> do, do you see any any promise at that in, in the political developments at that high level? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so contradictory. Like, you know, on I I, I guess the the biggest statement that I would make about the politics of this moment is that. What's clear is that neither capital nor workers can survive without state intervention, significant state intervention, like the like capital accumulation right now across the world and within countries is extremely dependent on public investment, on public bailouts, on public loans, on all sorts of public financing in order to reactivate the economy. So capital is like, you know, at the state coffers, like begging for money um, and they're getting a lot of it. Right. And we've seen that the past couple of stimulus measures have really prioritized the needs of, of corporations and their sort of bottom line. So that's on the sort of corporate end. On the worker end, we're seeing that, you know, as we've discussed already a few times in this conversation, that workers simply are unable to survive without their jobs um, because we live in a society in which your ability to survive is tied to your to the to whether or not you have a, a wage labor, right? Uh, because our entire existence is commodified and, and mediated through money. So both workers and capitalists of course, very asymmetrically, and it's a very unequal political terrain. But I think what is true is that both of the you know main two classes in our society um, require public investment um, in order to in order to survive. And what that is doing is sort of making Congress and budget and the budget and uh, public financing terrains of class struggle. Again, very unequal terrains, asymmetric terrains, but terrains nonetheless. And I think, you know, as socialists and as leftists, we should be paying as much attention as possible to the admittedly somewhat boring and often like dispiriting kind of details that come out of these congressional battles and also, you know, what the Biden campaign is doing internally as well, because that that's where a lot of the action is going to be. I think we're we're in an age where we potentially are going to get austerity for workers and communities and and basically public bailouts for the wealthy. Um, but we're also in a moment where I think workers and communities can put real pressure and make and make demands um, on on the sort of budgetary process. And so that that's where I, I think it's important to focus and where I do some, see some some openings and where the sort of basic terms, I don't think neoliberalism is over at all. Um, but I think sort of the basic terms and parameters of of, of political debate that were seen pretty set in, in a sort of moment of neoliberal hegemony are now kind of opened and loosened. And, and there's there's new trains of conflict. That was Theoria Francos, assistant professor of political science at Providence College and co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, from Versa. We discussed the dangers of individualized responses to the health crisis, sealing yourself in, as opposed to collective ones. This reminded me of a quote from the Swiss writer Friedrich Dürrenmatt's 1961 play, The Physicist, which I read in high school German and has stuck with me all these years. Every attempt by an individual to solve for himself that which concerns all must fail. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. 
My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Beethoven's Spring Sonata, first movement, performed by Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi. Despite everything, it is spring, and maybe a Green New Deal can be our political spring. Next, how capitalism threatens life itself. The journalist Alexander Zaitchik has an article in the New Republic on how the structure of the pharmaceutical industry makes it so hard to find a vaccine against COVID-19. It doesn't have to be this way. Alexander Zaitchik. The shortage of masks was a really striking feature, uh, especially early in this uh, pandemic crisis. You would think they're simple things, but there are actually patent issues around what seems like a fairly ordinary item. Yeah, a lot of patents. The complete list, I think, runs close to 400 uh, for 3M's masks, of which the N95 is, is a sort of flagship product. And they continued filing patent claims on their respiratory masks throughout April. So they kept adding to the hurdles for uh, the production of, of the product or similar uh, versions of that product that were similar in efficacy. But, you know, this is a, a little example of a very, very large problem in this industry. Uh, and part of the reason it's going to be so hard to get a vaccine is that the the enormous growth of intellectual property rights in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry. Just give us, you know, some overview of, of, uh, of that, and then we can talk some more about the history. Right. Well, I mean, that's sort of the building blocks of the business. They claim IP rights on discovery at every stage, and they also claim IP rights on every tweak of every discovery on every stage. So it's basically a game of barriers. It's sort of the opposite of what we think of uh, when we think of sort of the classical scientific model of think of the Enlightenment, where everyone's sort of sharing the latest breakthroughs and uh, it's, it's this human endeavor. I mean, the, the modern version of science is really about building the highest walls around your private science that you've poached in almost every case from uh, some academic or state lab. And the number of walls has reached just an absolutely absurd uh, level, both in terms of like their height and numbers, so that basic science is being obstructed, even when it's taking place outside of the profit model. And that's it's a big problem. And it's one that we're reckoning with right now as we try to pool the knowledge to, to get a vaccine for this thing. You make a point there that's very important that uh, most of the basic research is done either with uh, government funding, foundation funding, uh, or in universities, all you know, in the nonprofit sector. And then uh, the, the industry just uh, creams off what they want and then tries to uh, patent stuff and, and make a lot of money off it. But you know, the, the story they like to tell about themselves is that they're doing a lot of basic research. This is why drugs are so uh, expensive. But in fact, the private industry is not really doing much basic research at all, is it? No, the subsidy now is up to something like 42 or more billion dollars a year dispersed through the NIH system. And it's not just limited to basic science, although that is where most of the heavy lifting is being done with that money. It's also at very high risk points in development, um, all the way through to near testing in, in clinical trials. So the drug pipeline up and down is, is dependent on government money. And and the number of private industry R&D budgets is declining in terms of percentage of, of profits and has been for, for some time. And they're certainly not interested in doing research in the kinds of vaccines that uh, may not have an immediate payoff. That's you know, sort of insurance against future crises. But uh, unless uh, it's real, they're not interested. Yeah, I like any industry. I mean, it's all about steady markets, high returns. And they are like any industry, except for the fact that the product that they deal in not only determines 
the health and lives of, you know, many people, but it's also, as we're realizing now, has existential stakes. So the idea that we would allow the same basic model that determines what kind of cars are introduced to market and how they're designed and how many are made and how they're priced, the idea that that same model would be allowed to determine research and development of, of crucial medicines and vaccines uh, it's just, you know, it's it's got to be one of the most striking examples of where 50 years of neoliberalism has, has brought us. The excitement over Gilead's, uh, I can't know how to pronounce this, is remdesivir. There were, you know, certainly Wall Street got excited for a while. This looked like a miracle cure, at least uh, from the point of view of stock traders. Um, and there was some, you know, popular enthusiasm over it, too. How did uh, Gilead handle uh, 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 um excitement? Yeah, the remdesivir story is interesting because it grew out of a batch of other molecules that was funded mostly by the government at a lab in Emory that produced some extremely profitable hep C treatments that Gilead has already made historic profits off of. We're talking tens of billions of dollars. And that had already caused quite a scandal because they were charging close to $100,000 for a, a course of um, Sofubisir, but it was sold under Har- Harvani and um, Sofoldi. It cost about $300 to make a course of this stuff. And they were charging $100,000. They were breaking state Medicaid budgets all over the country. That was the story that was basically the backstory of remdesivir. And Gilead was the villain, rightly so. So now that they're allowed to sort of claim some halo effect based on the debatable efficacy of remdesivir uh, having activity against extreme COVID is, is just a bit much to watch. They tried to claim orphan drug status for remdesivir, which is sort of like with COVID, when they did it, it was like that scene in Indiana Jones where he grabs his hat under the, the wall that it's, that's coming down on it. And because there's a limit of 200,000 infections before you lose the tax benefit and extended patent associated with orphan drug status. So they tried to sneak it in right before the COVID number exceeded the cutoff. Even by drug industry standards, it was just shockingly brazen. And, you know, thanks to the work of groups like Public Citizen, it was flagged and they were forced to sort of hand back orphan drug status that they had been given by the FDA. But I mean, it's just sort of classic drug industry behavior. This is what they do. They do it all the time. And now there's you know a spotlight on them. So these kind of things are getting more attention than usual. But this is how they behave. They, I mean, these are basically quasi-criminal organizations who are not just gaming a system, but cutting corners. The criminal penalties that these guys face as a matter of doing business is very common thing. The generics companies are the subject of the biggest um, cartel case in U.S. history that involves something like 40 states attorneys general. These companies, this is what they do. And now is a chance for us to sort of really stop and and study them. And, And it's really important that we don't let any breakthroughs that they happen to be claiming go by without scrutiny. And remdesivir is a perfect opportunity to say, hey, hold on a second. Let's look at the backstory. Now, some countries will override the patents, right, uh, and just say, we need this for public health uh, or, or research and uh, the hell with your patent. Uh, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing the United States does, though. Yeah. I mean, compulsory licensing is something we're seeing around the world now. A handful of countries have done it, including the United States throughout history. During the Vietnam War, there was a company that was charging too much uh, for the Pentagon's taste for a certain ba- antibacterial and they basically broke patent on it. And they're like, no, you're, we're going to give you, you know, I think it was something like a dollar uh, treatment versus the, you know, whatever they were charging. So th- there are examples uh, of, of the U.S. doing it. Recently, there was a movement to, to break Gilead's patent on their hep C drugs um, using uh, U.S. patent code, which gives the U.S. government the right to, to do that. It didn't happen. But, uh, you know, that, that conversation was growing in the last couple of years. It wasn't always this way. Coming out of uh, World War II, uh, we had a very large public presence in um, the drug and vaccine development business, right? Yeah, very large. I mean, we basically the government basically ran it. They told private, you know, quote unquote partners what they would be making and how and how much they would be charging. And if they didn't agree, they were basically taken over. A huge number of drug companies were nationalized during the two world wars. 
and they all reverted back to to private ownership but they were nationalized outright during the wars and after world war ii the situation is a little gray but basically the government maintained a very sort of firm hand certainly compared to the situation now where the government is just handing its discoveries off to private companies and getting nothing in return in terms of um pricing guarantees or anything at all. So the the World War II system kind of lasted, if you talk to historians on this, until the early 70s. And then it really broke down and you started to see companies basically just turn their back on vaccine research, any sort of public mindedness on not too profitable vaccine programs was basically just let go. And that's when the number of vaccine manufacturers and research wings just started to melt away and began to cause quite a bit of alarm um, in the 1980s. And the backstory of that is kind of long, but basically there was a shift inside NIH. It was sort of like a, a revolution from within where some free market ideologues basically changed the rules to uh, incentivize and allow for government science to be snatched up by drug companies. And the patent period extended from several years to 20 years. If you have a monopoly patent on a expensive drug and no one's telling you you have to price it for affordability, that's that's basically a, a printing press for money for 20 years. And that's that's what we've had basically since the 70s. I'm speaking with the journalist Alexander Zaitchik. Since, this, uh, I guess, the early 80s, uh, the U.S. has been very aggressively pushing uh, intellectual property protections into uh, trade agreements. Um, and uh, sort of uh, really trying to internationalize our um, our treatment of the patent as sacred in the business, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it has been pretty successful uh, in doing that. In 1984, there was a trade act that sort of established the USIP regime globally. The WTO was another major event. And the U.S. has kind of swung its, uh, its power around to protect multinationals and, and U.S.-based drug companies. Um, but it hasn't been a universal success. I mean, the world was was very resistant to this for a long time. India, even though it's been punished again and again uh, by the U.S. Trade Representative in various ways uh, for its generics industry, which is you know so-called pharmacy of the third world, pharmacy of the South. But now maybe swinging back around. I mean, you have now you have the big drug makers going to India saying we need your generics industry for surge capacity for a potential vaccine. So maybe they're they're happy now, although they probably wouldn't use that word, that India's generics industry uh, has not been completely destroyed. You know, around the world, the story was a little bit more unfortunate. In the New Republic piece, I talked to uh, Dutch drugs access activist. And she's like, you know, here we used to have a vaccine research institute that was world-class and we had surge capacity and we basically privatized it all. And then the people that we privatized it to went off and pursued, you know, expensive cancer treatments and ED pills or whatever, whatever it was in that instance, uh, whatever company bought it and whatever their interest was, but it was not vaccines and it was replaced with more profitable uh, pursuits. And there's sort of some uh, remorse, I think, or she seemed to think so. And a lot of uh, people who've been working on these issues for a long time think uh, is finally starting to, to sort of settle. From as early as 2000, uh, just after the H5N1 outbreak, uh, the government really was thinking seriously about the risks of future pandemics. Uh, and then we you know, would see coming, following years, Ebola, MERS, SARS. What kind of uh, policy response uh, did uh, the Bush people um, devise in response to these uh, growing threats that were, were recognized at the time? Bush actually passed a couple big acts. The big one established the BARDA, the agency inside HHS, Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority, that was supposed to be in charge of vaccine research and development. And they have had a kind of um, halting path that hasn't resulted in uh, in too much is the consensus among people who work on this. Uh, you know, there's a few sort of public-private partnership facilities that the government is nominally in charge of, but they have been failures. They have partnered with these small um, these small companies that really don't 
have the the wherewithal. Yeah, the story since the Bush the Bush Obama years has been a kind of cautionary tale in I guess you'd call it trying to square the the public private circle. You know, they understand that the market is failing here and will continue to fail because vaccines is never going to offer the incentives that drug industry has come to expect and is based on. So they're trying to incentivize the needed work, but it hasn't worked. And there seems to be an understanding, if no one will actually come out and say it, that a full cycle batch, bench to batch drug pipeline funded and controlled by the government that can also ensure access, that can control prices, is really the only thing that is going to ensure that the needed resources and attention stay on the pandemics and potential pandemics of the future. Uh, I mean, as serious as this is, and as horrifying as this is for everybody, you know, the companies are kind of programmed as soon as it's over to go back to other things, just like they did after MERS and SARS-1 passed. I mean, even though MERS, which was pretty genetically similar to SARS-2, which is what we're dealing with now, had a mortality rate of 60%. I mean, this thing was horrifying. If it, it, it didn't really jump from people to people very well, so it died, but it was going from camel to people pretty fast. And, but it was just forgotten because it was like, okay, moment's over. Let's get back to making money with the same old, same old. And the government didn't keep its eye on the ball. So here we are. And, uh, you know, something, something has to change, clearly. You would think, you know, there are a lot of similarities in these viruses uh, and the diseases and that uh, you develop expertise in one, you could be more prepared that when the next one um, breaks out, but uh, they just like put it back in the cupboard and uh, try to tweak a molecule on Viagra and get a new patent. Isn't that pretty much their business strategy? Yeah, that's what Peter Hotez told told Congress uh, in March, the guy that runs the, the Tropical Medicine Research Center in Houston. He was like, look, we were, do, we were researching something very similar to this <laughs> pandemic, and then it just disappeared. You have got to do something to make sure that that doesn't happen. You've got to fund the work, and you've got to fund a lot of it. And now they're, they're sort of taking out of the cupboard um, their old uh, work, which, you know, has been on ice for more than 10 years. And, you know, how is that allowed to happen? I mean, it's just it's shocking. Well, then they also like uh, justify the high prices they charge by saying we've been doing all this research, but in fact they've just been sitting in their butts uh, trying to collect monopoly profits. Yeah, yeah. The the correlation between the drug prices and their um, R and D budgets and innovation is basically non-existent. They're just pushing up prices to a breaking point, and if people are dying, they figure they'll they'll get the money together. I mean, that's basically what happened with Hep C. It was kind of a boomer disease in the U.S., and uh, there were enough people who could afford the $100,000 treatments or whatever it worked out to after the, the little discounts that they offer, and uh, they, they made billions. But, you know, again, it was basically developed in an academic lab at Emory, and all they had was a piece of paper claiming ownership, and, and they basically just ran the house with it. Okay, so what could we do that's better? I mean, you talk about a, a public option in pharma. What, what, what would that look like? Yeah, the public option in pharma is an idea that has been most fully developed by Dana Brown at the Next System Project, which is Gar Alperowitz's think tank. And she has a paper that's, that's really interesting. I'd recommend anyone interested in this take a look at it. It basically lays out how a public drug sector could be organized out of the current NIH system. Because it's already, the skeleton is kind of in place for this, except for state-owned you know, manufacturing and distribution and retail sales outlets. The government is already so heavily involved in basic science and development that it's really just a few steps to fill out the picture. And we could use, she mentions the fact that we have states that already have monopolies on you know, booze, for example. We've got the post office, which is the, the country's biggest retail network. We've got the VA system, you know, store, uh, storage and, and warehousing. All these pieces are already in place. Really, it was just a question of breaking the patents so that generic can be produced. The private drug companies could not compete, obviously. They would leave those markets insulin. You know, 
the, the insulin cartel would basically just be forced to shut down. Um, so they could go into their you know, little niche areas or whatever it is and do lifestyle drugs. But the government would just produce basic essential medicines like they're already researching them just make them and sell them it's it's not super hard one of the biggest accomplishments propaganda accomplishments of this industry and the health sector generally devices insurance hospitals has been to convince people that drugs and health is just so complicated you couldn't possibly understand it it's so complicated you know the average person just doesn't understand what's involved it's a three billion dollar process to develop a tweaked drug and it's it's really not it's been this really depressing trick that they've been able to pull off through a lot of concerted efforts with you know organizations like the tough center for drug development and um you know a whole associated network of of um researchers and writers and and then they have this grip on the political system of course where you have, have the same you know points repeated endlessly but uh the the pieces are already in place for a really elegant cost-effective solution to this crisis and we're talking about manufacturing not just development right yeah full, full cycle um, and uh, you can't argue that the public sector is not innovative uh, in uh, pharmaceuticals since that's where most of the innovation comes from yeah and not just in the u.s although the u.s is the biggest investor in biomedical research i mean look in sweden a lot of countries still have public drug sectors people like to hear it on the right but cuba is a world-class innovator with with drugs including vaccines i mean they just got a, a this lung cancer vaccine approved for clinical trials in the u.s all a country has to do is decide to do it and uh you know the examples are, are legion in our own history and also around the world presently and the politics of this could actually be kind of promising because a lot of people hate the drug industry, and uh, you, you report a surprising openness to the idea of this kind of public uh, drug production, right? It's not uh, the American public is not uh, swallowing uh, the pharmaceutical industry's line. No, public drug production pulls pretty well, and it's always at the top of people's lists. Drug prices, how could it not be? They keep going up. We're the only country in the world where people are insulin rationing and dying people trying to pay for life-saving drugs on GoFundMe. Everyone knows someone who's trying to do that. Everyone's terrified of getting sick and not being able to afford their drugs or, or treatments. And it's, it's reached a breaking point. So it, it really should not be a tough sell if we can get some more organized activity around this. And Elizabeth Warren and Jan Sachowski have you know kind of started to lead the way. They've introduced a couple of acts um, most recently the COVID-19 emergency manufacturing act I think it is which is more uh, equipment than vaccines but um, and, and drugs and essential medicines but they also have introduced uh, a, a public pharma piece of legislation which would have uh, state production of essential medicines which are currently priced beyond the reach of a lot of people. That was Alexander Zajcik, author of a piece in the New Republic on how intellectual property restrictions are boosting drug company profits at the expense of public health. By the way, Gilead has made over $76 billion in profits over the last 15 years, $47 billion of that total in the last five, most of it from treatments for hepatitis C. The Washington Post reported in March 2019 that Truvada, used as a prophylactic against AIDS, was originally developed and patented by the CDC for a cost of about $50 million. Gilead has, according to experts cited by the Post, essentially violated that patent and has been pulling in about $3 billion a year, selling it at high prices, $1,600 to $2,000 a month for a substance that costs a fraction of that to manufacture. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Geld, German for money, by the early 1980s punk band Melodia. Till next week, bye. <laughs>